0: Pitchford knew his wife, Betty, a retired educator whose lively mind was lost in the fog that is Alzheimer's, was going to get worse. But he hadn't expected her to die, at least not so soon. Betty's ramped-up decline started with the coronavirus pandemic. The nursing center where she lived closed to visitors, and everything changed. George, and a legion of family friends were no longer allowed to take Betty on the walks she so greatly enjoyed. Within months, she was in a wheelchair. They saw her only through window visits or via FaceTime calls, neither of which were especially productive. Betty seldom spoke. After a while, the glimmer of recognition that appeared in her eyes when she heard George's voice disappeared. She didn't want to eat. All these things just sort of fed on each other, George Pitchford said. In September, Betty Pitchford, 76, who had been an accomplished quilter, occasional clown for children's parties, active member of her church, and the NAACP and director of special education for the Pontiac School District outside of Detroit, became one of the thousands of Americans with dementia to die unexpectedly, succumbing not to the infection of COVID-19, but to the way it upended their already off-the-kilter lives.
1: Now, this uh, is one story out of thousands out there. Yes. Well, Aisha and I are very familiar with the uh, Alzheimer's patients and dementia patients. And uh, you and I see them in the clinic all the time. Right. We have an emotional commitment and bond with these patients. Um, besides the fact that we both experienced this with our grandparents and I was in the same room, you know, taking care of my grandmother in the last few years of her life. So when I saw this story and uh, this pitch, it really devastated me personally because I know that it's... As as devastating as this story and thousands of other stories that are out there, it's much worse than what it appears on the surface.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the term tsunami has been used with Alzheimer's quite often, but this is much worse than that. The numbers are bewildering. Right. I mean, every year, about 260,000 Alzheimer's patients die earlier than expected, but this year... An excess of nearly 40,000 individuals passed before their time.
0: That's just...
1: Nearly uh, 300,000 people. That's 16 to 20% more than what was expected. Imagine any community having 16%, that's the lowest number, you know dying off faster than expected. Now, why is this happening. I mean, we know that COVID itself is affecting millions of people, but much of this death is not just COVID related. It's all the other things that have accumulated in a community that's most vulnerable. It's almost like a perfect storm that accumulated into a devastation of the patients, their families, and it's happening in plain sight. And it's not spoken about for multiple reasons, and I'll talk about them, and I I think it's gonna be a little controversial what I'm going to say, but uh, so be it. And it's almost as if there's nothing we can do. There are things we can do, and this is a reflection of how complex the situation has been, and why this binary argument has paralyzed us. Mm
0: -hmm. The
1: answer is in complexity. The answer is not in simple yes, no binary patterns of all seclusion and, and separation versus you know, wide open where everybody goes out without masks? The answer is in complexity. And until we find ourselves in that complexity, we will keep harming ourselves. And then these communities that are most vulnerable that are going to be affected. At other times we've spoken of uh, other communities that have been devastated, the uh, African-American communities, the Hispanic communities, but generally, the communities that have less access to healthcare and to information and to resources, public health 101. So we have to start talking about this in in its complexity. This community was especially devastated because let's look at the picture here. Whenever somebody has dementia, in majority of communities, they're actually secluded already. Whether they keep them in their own home just the nature of the disease, because the person can get lost, or the fact that the family is away and they are secluded and kept in a closed environment, or in nursing home facilities that are actually closed environments. So at the beginning of all this, there were, you know, hundreds of thousands of individuals in nursing facilities that were closed to begin with. They couldn't go in and out. Resources were limited to begin with. These individuals have many comorbidities and we've spoken about the fact that those comorbidities are the things that actually contribute significantly to disease and the disease progression. Add to that the fact that many people are not familiar with how to deal with this disease. The family members that come, even if it's once a week, that once a week connection is so significant. It's that once a week that the patient actually gets a shower because otherwise they're nervous or takes a bath or that once a week that they actually go out with their family member. It's that once a week that they eat hearty meal because otherwise they're scared and there's a diminution and and appetite, but when the family's there, they actually eat better. It's that once a week that they feel a sense of meaning and belonging and purpose in in many of the individuals. Add to that the fact that anxiety is a ubiquitous, ever-present component of this disease and it gets more and more as the disease progresses. And you take people who already are devastated with the anxiety of the disease and the situation and the unfamiliarity, and you take away all the familiar away from them. Right. And what you have is a perfect storm of all these factors. Sorry, I'm not even done with the list.
0: Right, no, it's it's quite devastating, you're
1: right. A lot of the patients with Alzheimer's end up in the emergency room for UTIs or respiration problems or the fact that they, uh, they have difficulty with visual spatial aspects, so they fall. So usually they go to the emergency room to be taken care of. But under these circumstances, all those things were stopped. So the minor or what appeared to be minor problems were never addressed. They never ended up going to the emergency room and that ended up becoming a problem mm-hmm. because a UTI can become sepsis, an infection that can go rampant. A fall that usually gets caught in the emergency room actually turns into a subdural hematoma and and can kill a person. A scrape can become an infection and the list goes on and on and on. So that's why a situation like this, you know, led to 16% greater mortality. Mm -hmm. And then comes the bigger problem for me, which is the human component, the, the emotional component. As I said, Anxiety and fear is a ubiquitous component of this disease. And the one thing that mitigates it and reduces it is familiar faces. The daughter, the son, the husband, the wife, the cousin. The friend. The friend that comes and plays a familiar music with them or has a familiar conversation. In fact, at the core of what we do with Alzheimer's patient is. You know, find those 20 great stories that you lived with them.
0: Every family has Every, them. Yeah,
1: embellish them even more. Yeah, That becomes your best anxiety-reducing medicine better than any Xanax or Librium or anything else. But when the person is not there, they're not connecting, That it, it becomes incredibly devastating. So this story is important, not because it's, it's affecting a population, because it's a f- reflective of what we are all going through. But this is the battle line that we face when you have vulnerable communities that we actually put them into a big bucket and never address what would happen in the complexity. By the way, we're not blaming anybody. We're not like those people who say, Oh, why didn't we do this? And what the situation was so complex that we ourselves lost our mother in this journey, two doctors without even knowing. In fact, the tests initially came back negative for COVID, but before we knew it, we had lost her. Right. So there's no blame, it's just reflection and learning, adapting, changing, not just for this occasion, but for future occasions.
0: Right, and I think the purpose of this conversation that you and I are having, as we were speaking earlier before we started recording, was just to shed some light on essentially an epidemic right now, and uh, for us not to forget the importance of that human connection for patients with Alzheimer's disease, and this, is an amazing example of how the brain craves information. I think from a neuroscientific perspective, when we talk about uh, cognitive reserve or uh, neural connections or the building of these connections between brain cells, it you know, we, we talk about nutrition and exercise and stress management and so on and so forth. But one of the most important thing is, constant information gathering or being being exposed to data and information. And that's a very important component, especially for people who are fighting against dementia and Alzheimer's mm-hmm. disease. And that's where you know hearing loss contributes to us. People who are disconnected from their environment tend to have a more rapid cognitive decline.
1: That's independent of Alzheimer's. Agreed. Uh, this tells you that all connections all forms of connections are central to brain growth and brain vitality. Mm -hmm. And especially in a population like this that's vulnerable to begin with, they're already having some form of attack on their brain. You take away the connection and almost billions, if not trillions of connections just wither away and pull back. Right. And and you can see that. So our most important factor is the human component.
0: Exactly. And so uh, seeing patients in 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 our clinics and in the hospital the the one thing that keeps coming back over and over again is just that that dementia patients are not getting the stimulation of their minds and this enormous amount of anxiety plus the lack of information ends up causing more damage than was ever expected and it's pretty sad because when you and I have been doing some visits with our patients on um, an online Zoom or or any other platform, there's always a caregiver sitting there and the caregiver, you know, essentially is telling us what the patient is going through. And I personally see the sadness in, Mm -hmm. in patients' face and their demeanor. And no matter how Many times they are, you know, taken away from their loneliness, from their room into a more uh, common space. Now they're actually taking them to common spaces. But, you know, for, for months and months they've been completely isolated. It's still not the same as the daughter or the son or the husband or the friend or the family member talking to them and speaking with them. So from your perspective, what seems to be the solution here? I know that there's no simple solution to this, but what have you seen that works really well for these individuals.
1: And the controversial thing I wanna say is that we really have to acknowledge that there is a bias. There's ageism, we know that, but there is a much more profound bias against patients who have dementia. Even in the medical field, nobody says it, nobody talks about it, but this concept of do not resuscitate, which is important concept, we're not, or not taking care of patients with dementia as aggressively is uh, present there, it's ever present there. And and we must get rid of this okay. concept because they feel, they experience, they suffer, they a major part of the community and we must acknowledge that. And one of the things that I think that contributed to this mortality or death, excess death, uh, is the fact that when uh, dementia patients came in, they were less prioritized. Given that we were overwhelmed, I mean, again, no blame. You mean it's c- when they came into the hospital? If or they to got the to the hospital rooms? in the first place, I mean, uh, they usually weren't taken to the hospital right. because a lot of times the same kind of language, uh, the communication that that gets one person to the emergency room, is not there for a patient with Alzheimer's or dementia. So, if usually they didn't even get to the emergency room, the the, the problem accumulated because the caregivers were overwhelmed. The, the thought of taking somebody for minor or what appeared to be minor things to the emergency room was minimal. But then if, even if they got into the emergency room, you remember there were times where we had patients down the hallways and we, we transferred patients to the pediatric ward.
0: Right, right
1: and a patient comes in with dementia and they say oh his mental state is a little more or disoriented than usual which is usually what happens right, right? absolutely if somebody has a urinary tract infection or um, a gi problem or even a blood loss or anything
0: one of the most common emergency room consults is just that altered mental status altered
1: mental status and, uh, patients and if, with you, if cognitive they,
0: decline yes
1: yeah. yes and if they see in the note that this person already had a dementia or alzheimers it just Automatically goes to the fact, oh, it's just an exacerbation of that. Mm-hmm. And the underlying causes diminish. I think that is the first thing that has to happen. That there must be a national conversation about the fact that, yeah, we are overwhelmed, but we can't neglect the situation as it is uh, with these patients that might have the same kind of problems.
0: Yes, that's true. Exactly. That's a very important factor. But I also think that the contribution of loneliness and disconnection itself also contributes a whole lot into speeding up the process of cognitive decline, oh, yes. which makes a dementia patient susceptible to say infection or inflammation or any other comorbidity that existed in them.
1: I definitely I agree. I think, I think you and I have spoken about this quite a bit. We think that the emotional contribution to immune deficiency, the emotional contribution to the stress pathways in the body, the emotional contribution to you know reverse vitality, you know, it's a completely reversing the direction of uh, life forces. I don't want to sound uh, foo foo, but uh, is 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 real, and it's and we know the mechanisms. We've talked about this, where of you know, the emotions that you experience, especially chronically if there are negative emotions, and you can go from the whole range of what's called cyclothymia, which is minor, to all the way to massive depression, to anxiety. The information that goes from the limbic system to the hypothalamus, then to the pituitary, and then to the sympathetic system, and then to the uh, adrenal system, it affects your entire body, be it thyroid, growth hormone, insulin, immune system, everything is affected. Sex hormones, everything, and chronically it's affected. Even in the young, we know that, Chronic stress in the young affects their brain significantly, and we see shrinkage right. even in the young. Right. Now take a person who's in their 60s or 70s or 80s, who already has cognitive decline and stress to begin with, and you stress them even further, or there's their their experience greater stress experiences, their entire system is altered. And if they're older, their immune system is weaker to begin with. Now that's even that's profoundly affected by this whole a whole alteration. So yes, do we think that their immune system was more susceptible? Absolutely, because of the stress pathway we, we just talked about. So the solution is first on the medical community and the caregiver community, take it as seriously as always. If there is an alteration, assume there's a problem and follow through. On the other side is connection, more connections. As it happened, one of the things that came out of this whole terrible situation is it forced us into finding alternate means of connecting and i think that's going to remain after all this is gone mm-hmm. hopefully after all this is gone the and that's the zoom and skype and doc symmetry whatever all these different kind of connections that we have i think we can we must use this on a regular basis now it's critical that we bring it into everyday life it's critical that we use it that one conversation matters, that one conversation with the loved one that's in a nursing home in a closed environment really matters. Right. So use the Zoom, use the whatever tools that we've gained out of this um, you know, terrible situation to connect. I think the greatest thing that we can leave out of this as a legacy of this horrible situation is, we all take the time to call one older loved one, be it dementia or otherwise, at least once every few days or once a week that would be a revolution. That would would be a care and connection revolution. Right. Uh, So I I say that let's make that our learning tool and make that a a imperative that we all connect as much as we can with a loved one. And when when patients with Alzheimer's see your face, when they see a familiar face, it's not just that for one moment that they have actually anchored themselves. It is a long-term anchor. Mm. I call this uh, the islands of consciousness. You are an island, a central island of consciousness for somebody. Right. Look at that power. You are a central island of consciousness for somebody. Right, that's That's, profound. That's profound. Yeah. That's the power you have. That connection that you make with somebody, that connection that you make with somebody who has Alzheimer's, cognitive decline, or has been left paralyzed with a stroke, actually becomes their very meaning, their very purpose, their very center of consciousness. Isn't that amazing? It really is. We, we keep talking about these bombastic service and we're going to go do this in Africa and then we should do that everywhere. I mean, we're, we're global people, but let's connect with our families. True. Let's connect with one person that needs that connection.
0: Or I say, if there is no one in your family, oh. which is quite rare. Yes. If you don't have anyone in your family, adopt
1: one. Yes.
0: Adopt someone who needs to have a conversation with you. Oh. Connect with another individual.
1: Make sure that they, their family is aware and they're aware. <laughs> Otherwise, it's going to sound like <laughs> one of those crank calls that I get and which I reverse crank call, but uh, <laughs> or uh, marketing calls. But <laughs> it's critical. Yeah. Adopt somebody. Right. Isn't that beautiful?
0: I really, I love that. I, I think that's one of my favorite themes and reflections from this crazy time that we've been through, establishing more human connections and valuing those conversations and those moments of connections, because it's not just service to the other person, but you grow. Yeah. I grow. I benefit from it extremely. Do you have examples of your patience and their community members doing a better job at this of keeping connected and creating some specific measures of increasing their loved one's capacity to think and to
1: judge and to make decisions? I actually have a couple cases, patients, I hate saying cases. I know. Patients, Lovely family people. members. They're my family. <laughs> I, I have these cases uh, of family members who Actually, the family told me that they improved during this time. Amazing, because they realized that they could use—in this case, it was Zoom—they could use this, uh, you know, telecommunication device, and they assigned different family members the time to call the loved one. Yeah. So now, a person that was not getting calls maybe once every two weeks was getting a call once a day. It takes it takes ten minutes. Yeah that 10 minutes becomes you know the central universe of that person right and the wake is joy and the wake of that moment is awareness and the wake of that moment is greater meaning for the next day and the wake of that moment is greater purpose for the next day oh you know johnny called today and tomorrow's going to be you know michelle or, Right. Or so it's it's it, it, those are not meaning, we we lose the value of that that those connections, mm-hmm. but uh, it's profound. I have a patient, um,
0: this is a lovely story. So I have a patient who... You didn't like my story?
1: <laughs> I did, I love <laughs> no, your I'm
0: stories. Um, one of my patients says, she's a 72-year-old lady. She lives in a memory care. Yeah. And uh, during the pandemic, she was unable to see her son, his wife, uh, three grandchildren, and her daughter who was out of state. And so what they did was they- mm-hmm bought her an iPad and they magnified it. So it, it, you know, the icons are pretty large. They got rid of all of the apps except for Skype. Yes. And they left it right there so that she wouldn't get confused pressing on any other apps. And they mounted that iPad without any passwords on the wall next to the window where she would spend most of her time looking outside. And I get emotional talking about this because I've seen, actually, I've talked to that patient through that Skype several times And they taught the nurse how to turn it on and off. There was, you know, just troubleshoot it. And every day, all of these individuals, including her grandchildren, would call her for about 10 minutes every day and speak with her. And sometimes the Skype would be on in the background while she was eating food or reading a book or even taking a nap. And the kids and the grandkids would come and check on her, make sure she was okay. And I thought that was brilliant.
1: It is. That was is. brilliant. Some of your patients, uh, the stroke patients, especially the ones that have left parietal stroke, uh, what they call Broca's strokes. Mm-hmm. Um, when people have strokes, especially in the language center, there are different kinds of linguistic strokes or aphasias, they call them. Right. The motor aphasias are the kind where the person can understand everything. They just can't produce language for the most part. And what happens, and there's a lot of them out there, right. And different degrees. What happens is, after a while, people around them get the sense that oh, uh, they're not as much there as as before. But they are. They're completely there. It's just that they can't communicate. With my patients, there's a, these, this syndrome called primary progressive aphasia. Mm-hmm. Again, there are quite a few of them out there where language is affected disproportionately.
0: Disproportionate to memory, to memory and right.
1: thinking and cognition and all that. And and what's amazing is when people are assigned to them to have conversation with them, not only does their language become better, they're so much more connected. Even their motor systems are improved. Remember with strokes, whenever language is affected, often the motor system is affected. But when people start talking to them, even their motor systems are improved.
0: Right, right.
1: That tells you that the profound power of conversation. Right. You know, uh, we have a our ability to converse has terrible consequences. We can do bad things, say bad things, create chaos out there. But the beauty is this language, this core of consciousness is also a builder. Mm-hmm. It's also a civilization builder, community builder, humanity builder, and and we need to use it more. If anything, one of the lessons that should come out of this you know, COVID situation is, yes, the situation is going to vary. The next virus is We, again, we have to overshoot because it could be more virulent, more deadly. So, yeah, but we should take it on more complexly with communication at its core, with us keeping, somehow keeping the human component. We are as human as we communicate. There's a book by um, Dr. Joy who wrote uh, The Consciousness and the Bicameral Mind is at the core of consciousness is human communication. that, That has its significance because more capacity to communicate and think, more conscious. But irrespective, it's communication. So I think we must learn to whatever we have to do to survive, the lines of communication must not be severed. In fact, the lines of communication must be enhanced. Often, our ability to communicate with each other is more important than food for us. Hmm. We know communities that are well-to-do. They have all the cars, all the food, all the how beautiful houses. We've been in Beverly Hills and other places we've worked, but emotionally they're devastated because in the middle of a crowd they're lonely because there's no meaningful communication. It must begin and end in communication. All pandemics, all epidemics, all human dilemmas, must begin and end in communication. And the lesson is not a myopic binary communication. We must hear the other side. We must hear the patients who are suffering from Alzheimer's. Sometimes we don't hear them through words, we hear them through their expressions, their faces, their eyes. You know, I'm not very good with names, as you know, but I'm incredibly good at remembering facial expressions and the anxiety, that they experience. So this is one disease in one community that has caused so much pain and suffering. And if we don't learn something that's grander than what puts us in our silos and repeat the same cycles, we have done more harm than the virus. So I think um, this is our lesson, which is we are going to, um, you and I have started communicating with more people have adopted some people with their permission and family's (laughs) permission. And uh, we, you and I, because of our research, we are always in communication with our research communities. And and we love that aspect of what we do. In fact, at the core, at the core of our brain health initiative is communication, human communication.
0: I think we're going to end it there. That was beautiful, Dean. And that's why I love you so much.
1: I love you and your contribution, what you do with your patients. Uh, it, every day uh, i see you get emotional and i see you connecting with them i see you bringing out the human out of them and bring, bringing out the human out of you what i mean by that is sometimes we become robots yeah we repetitive do. behavior i have to see 15 patients in a day no it's me connecting with another universe of consciousness isn't that isn't that a magical thing it's a privilege isn't that a gift it really is a privilege I mean, I don't want to go down this, you know, rabbit hole of Descartes. What is real? What's real? (laughs) What's real is me communicating with the person in front of me. It's not I think, therefore I am. I communicate because therefore we are.
0: Right.
1: I love that. uh, And I hope that uh, we learn that from this tragedy.
0: Lovely.